Welcome to another episode of Historias, the Spanish History Podcast. I'm your host, Foster Chamberlain. I'm joined today by Charles Nicholas Sainz, an assistant professor of history at Adams State University in Colorado. We're going to discuss the role of the local in the emergence of Spain's early representative governments during the War of Independence. So Nick, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So I thought to begin, it might be helpful to have a little bit of background about what local governments were like in Spain before 1808. And in your work, you mention that the ideas of elections and even constitutional government existed in Spain during the 18th century. So what do you mean about the presence of those ideas? Well, so Spanish government essentially, uh, as it existed in the 18th century, in many ways dated all the way back to the medieval period insofar as a lot of the institutions uh, from the medieval period continued into the early modern period. It's not necessarily that there was uh, direct election, certainly not as we think of it today, uh, but the offices of municipal government in many cases had a sort of semi uh, elective quality to them. What I mean by that is certainly uh, elites were able to participate more fully uh, in local government uh, through the 18th century. Uh, but then in 1766, there was a very important event called the Motin de Esquilache. Uh, a series of riots broke out in Madrid. Uh, the king was forced to flee the capital. Uh, and resulting from that pretty disruptive moment uh, were the institution of many changes in Spanish government. But at the local level, what that meant were the creation of two offices, most importantly the Diputado del Común, uh, a sort of representative of the people uh, who was elected uh, and who essentially served on the cabildos or the, the town councils as a representative of the common folk uh, of the community. So this wasn't an office necessarily that had the ability to sway uh, opinion in town councils, but this was an office that was created in essence to give voice uh, on the town council for uh, that sec sector of the population that had historically been excluded from full participation. So when we have these structures um, in the 18th century, then we have this huge moment, as the listeners may know, May 2nd, 1808, this popular uprising against the Spanish occupation of Spain that had begun a few months before. And so then you also get local uh, councils, these juntas, forming to coordinate the, the resistance against the French. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about these juntas, how uh, they were formed and who made them up. Yeah, so the, the junta, I, I think it's worth noting in, in sort of the the American, uh, and by that I mean U.S. world, we, we have this connotation of junta being a very negative thing, right? We, we associate them, I think, oftentimes with uh, dictatorships in South America, especially during the 20th century, uh, military regimes. But the idea of a junta, it, it just means a, a council or a committee. Uh, and so there's a long history of juntismo, this dimension of community decision-making that goes far back in Spanish history. Uh, and so what happens in 1808 in response to the crisis of a French invasion uh, are efforts to mobilize national support uh, through various town uh, subcommittees of the town councils uh, into essentially what become known as juntas de guerra. Uh, and these juntas de guerra are principally resp responsible for mobilizing uh, men to serve in the ranks of the sort of uh, voluntary armed forces of the country. But it's also, uh, I, I think, linked into a larger experience of 
mobilizing a sort of grassroots response to the crisis, uh, trying to mobilize common town folk into uh, a more structured response to the, the crisis that Spain is experiencing in this period. Uh, this is a period that sees the monarchy essentially decapitated. The king doesn't lose his head, uh, but as the uh, sort of pinnacle of Spanish uh, political administration, uh, the, the monarchy is basically forced into abdication. Both the king and the heir are carted off to France, where they, where they stay for the rest of the war. Uh, and so in the absence of the monarchy and, and the role of the crown, uh, we have this sort of grassroots response. And, and the juntas are a really critical part of understanding that. So what's interesting to me is that they emerge out of this earlier tradition of the uh, town councils. Absolutely. You know, there's, uh, there's often reference in looking at the crisis of 1808 to uh, this idea that in the absence of the crown, power devolves. At least this is a sort of argument made by some of the contemporaries and has been taken uh, with many scholars, I think, more seriously, that, that power devolved essentially to the pueblos, uh, the towns, uh, and so that there's this sort of aggregative function uh, of uh, the state, you know, power is given by the towns to the crown. Uh, you can think about the Spanish monarchy essentially being composite in nature with the composition of multiple kingdoms, but at the more sort of almost, you know, nuclear atomic level of, of, of the government, it, it's the towns that make up the kingdoms. Uh, and so ultimate power goes back to this very local uh, dimension of uh, political authority. Uh, and that resurfaces again through the, through the juntas. The juntas are the uh, literal manifestation of that idea. Yeah, and, and when we talk about 18th century kingship, we think about absolute monarchy and everything being top down, but it seems like actually it was the opposite in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think the idea of absolutism is an appropriate way for thinking about how the monarchy viewed its role uh, and the degree of power it had over uh, the rest of the empire. But if you look throughout uh, certainly the 18th century, but even before that, uh, the degree of power that the crown exerted was not always uniform, certainly, across uh, time and place, uh, and in many ways was contingent upon uh, the willingness, in some sense, uh, of locals to recognize that authority uh, in every form in which it was given. So I also want to ask you about um, one of these juntas in, in particular, and that is the Junta de Sevilla. You mentioned that in your research as being a, a particularly important one. Why was that one so important? Yeah, I think a big part of understanding the, the role of the Junta de Sevilla is appreciating the, the place of Seville uh, or Sevilla as it's its own Spanish uh, within the larger uh, Spanish political system. Uh, certainly in Andalusia, it is one of, along with Granada, uh, one of the major urban centers uh, of southern Spain, uh, but it also because of its history uh, dating back to essentially the time of the discovery of, uh, of the New World, its close links to the Americas is sort of really central to understanding the, the role uh, of Seville. So those links with the Americas put it in a position to have really, apart from Cadiz, uh, which in many ways was sort of already within the orbit of Seville, the best position to claim through its transatlantic links uh, access to the wealth uh, and the population numbers and all the influence that came along with uh, the Americas. Uh, and so the, the Junta de Sevilla really is able to play up its role in part because it's that central nodal point of access with 
the Americas. And ultimately, in the context of the war, as the, as the French essentially move from the north southward, uh, Seville is sort of the largest remaining city outside of their influence and remains so for quite a late uh, point in time as the invasion is taking place, ultimately uh, until Cadiz becomes the, the resident spot of the uh, national uh, government. But then, if, if we take a step back for a second, in September 1808, we also have the Junta Central Supremo, which is for, formed in Aranjuez near Madrid. So I wonder if you could tell us how that one was, was a little bit different relative to some of these local ones like in Sevilla. Yeah, so the Junta in Aranjuez, essentially, which is essentially uh, Aranjuez is the town that's perhaps best known today uh, as uh, the, the residence uh, of, uh, or one of the, the principal uh, palaces of the, of the Bourbon monarchy. It's not far from Madrid, it's just south of Madrid, um, and many uh, vacationers who use Madrid uh, as, as a base uh, for uh, touring throughout Spain uh, know that you can hop on a train and go down to Aranjuez uh, pretty easily. Uh, but what happened essentially in the absence of centralized government, uh, there was no one to decide or uh, tell essentially the various juntas which one was in control. And so they all basically clamored to insist that they were the supreme authority uh, and that they had a power to tell the other juntas what to do. Well, many of the persons who had made up senior ranks of the late Bourbon regime, uh, those who at least were not sort of involved in the uh, French occupationary regime, they moved south to Aranjuez and they set up a Junta Central, which in a sense, by virtue of uh, being composed of many of the uh, main sort of movers and shakers of the uh, former government, they figured just sort of outright that they would naturally become uh, the voice of centralized authority. The Junta de Sevilla, like many others, is actually resistant to this idea and argues there's no better claim that the Junta Central in Aranjuez can offer to, to essentially assert its position vis-a-vis uh, -vis the other uh, juntas. And so there's a little bit of a feud between them. The Junta Central uh, in Aranjuez is led by the Conde de Florida Blanca, uh, who's sort of one of these important personalities uh, during uh, the latter part of the 18th century, uh, sort of representative of this uh, class of non-nobles who become ascendant in the latter part uh, of the 18th century. Uh, Florida Blanca was far from being uh, a radical, far from being someone who was looking for change during this period. He becomes the head of the uh, Junta in Aranjuez, uh, which in many ways for, for some is seen as the more conservative, the more sort of status quo uh, representative Junta. The membership of the Junta de Sevilla although not very radical, had a sort of its base of support in Seville, a more radical sort of uh, base of popular support. And so for some, uh, this was a feud between a, a more conservative and a more progressive junta. Um, ultimately, however, the, the junta central uh, is able to assert its supremacy over the junta de Sevilla and, and others. So we're gonna take a short break, and when we come back, we'll look at how this junta central is able to assert its supremacy.
So in this second segment, I thought we could look at a few months later in the war when the Junta Central, as the French advanced southward, had to flee to Sevilla. And there it came face to face with one of its rivals. We've been talking about the Junta de Sevilla. So how did the Junta Central assert its supremacy uh, over these other juntas and how did local governments uh, play a role here? Yeah, so as the Junta Central is basically forced out of Aranjuez uh, at, at really the, the confrontation with about 60,000 French troops led by Marshal Soule, uh, they flee southward uh, to Seville, which is sort of seen to be the, the most stable place in the region. The Junta de Sevilla obviously had been somewhat resistant to the idea of being told what to do by the Junta Central, uh, but the city of Seville uh, had strong walls. Economically, it offered the best potential vantage to keep the war effort going. Uh, and so the Junta Central sees Sevilla as its ultimate destination. Uh, and so in 1808, uh, it transports itself across the Sierra Morena uh, to the town of Seville. By this point, the relationship between the two is uh, somewhat ironed out. At its arrival, there's a sort of medieval ceremony whereby the town council of Seville and the Junta de Sevilla send out uh, representatives to sort of greet the, uh, the Junta Central. When it comes into the city, occupies, and this is important, I think, the Reales Alcazares, which are uh, essentially the royal residences uh, of the crown when it visits uh, Seville. And so by taking up residence in that location through the assertion of a few other sort of symbolic acts, uh, what we see ultimately is using uh, symbolism, I argue, uh, as a way to really uh, position it in relationship to the Junta de Sevilla. In your research, you talk about the funeral of Florida Blanca, the, the count you mentioned earlier, who's kind of the president of the Junta Central. How did that funeral also help the, the Junta Central to uh, solidify its position? Yeah, somewhat tragically, after about two weeks of time in Seville, the Count of Florida Blanca, the individual I talked about earlier, uh, dies. Now, he was quite old. He was in his 80s, uh, so this wasn't unexpected on some level. Uh, he had just undergone quite the, the trek across the country to arrive in Seville. Uh, he, he passes away, uh, and there is an effort to commemorate his death with a somewhat, certainly by the standard of the crisis, outlandish uh, celebration. So the uh, officials basically declare a funeral in keeping with uh, an infante de España. So infante in, in uh, Spanish terminology essentially is a royal prince. So they're giving someone who wasn't even noble the title of being someone of royal blood uh, and then along with that all of the ceremony, all of the pomp, all of the circumstance that would accompany something like the death of a royal prince. And so things like the bells uh, are, 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 are rung and uh, the cannons are fired, um, his body is basically laying in state for a time, there is a massive funeral uh, at the cathedral wherein basically all of the ranks uh, and uh, titled nobility and, and persons of significant repute within Seville are invited to attend. Uh, and so, you know, beyond just this uh, somewhat fantastical show of, of splendor, 
what I argue is that this moment is also an opportunity for the Junta Central to celebrate its position uh, and to sort of assert its role within the existing political landscape of the time. And so to celebrate its president, uh, Florida Blanca, uh, as though he was a, a ruler, in essence almost a monarch, uh, suggests that it is the preeminent political organization on uh, the peninsula at that point in time. Uh, and so as much as this is a religious act, uh, a moment of burial, it's, it's also uh, a political act uh, of asserting supremacy. And how unprecedented is this move for this council essentially to take the, this pageantry that's normally associated with a king and attach it to itself? It seems like an unusual move, especially because my understanding is that they sort of declared themselves to be the representatives of Fernando Septimo, but he never even said that they were his official representatives. Right. I mean, generally, the, the only people who get such ostentation are royals. And if it's going to be a non-royal, typically royals are the ones saying that they will allow that to happen. In this instance, the, the, the title Infante is not something uh, granted by a member of the royal household, but is essentially uh, a title made by a representative assembly, the, the juntas, which are, which are calling themselves basically the, the will of the people. So in this sense, we're already seeing an early effort on the part of almost sort of semi-democratic, you might say, forces to try to assert their position in naming the crown, right? Which is this sort of inversion of the way things are supposed to happen, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, the crown is supposed to, uh, from the top down, give orders. In this sense, uh, it is the bottom up, in this case, the juntas, basically saying who is the crown and who is royal uh, by naming Florida Lanca and Infante in this way. Yeah, I think what's kind of interesting is that on the one hand, you have this shift towards uh, more representative government in, in some sense, but then also it, it seems that you're suggesting these representatives from different localities and, and different regions, which seems to run counter to the usual idea of the Junta Central trying to eliminate the, the influence of those local areas that were so important in the first months of the war. So, so do you think your study of the Junta Central does kind of change the way we, we see its relationship to the local? Yeah, and I, I think, you know, certainly the, the Junta Central is aware of the need to create a function for itself. Uh, so certainly, obviously, there, there's fighting between the juntas about who is the most important uh, among the juntas. Uh, the junta central never really loses an appreciation for the fact that that loyalty has to be won over and over again. And so even though it might have asserted its position over the rest of the population, the rest of the, the other juntas, it uses every opportunity at its disposal to remind the, the population that it is uh, the most important. Uh, of them all. Ultimately, though, I, you know, this isn't necessarily a fully convincing effort. Uh, ultimately, the, the juntas are, are going to have to give way to the Cortes. And I think in, in, in this respect, we see that maybe this, this argument uh, that, it, that is 
coming out of the effort to make Florida Blanca into something that he's not also shows a degree that 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 argument is not fully accepted by some of the powers that be. Um, I would argue among the lower ranks, it's not necessarily a terribly significant argument for, for them. It, it doesn't matter. But among the ranks of Spain's elite uh, and the persons who actually wield power within the system, uh, the, the claim that is being made of, of Florida Blanca is not necessarily convincing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the Junta Central is effective in the short term. In the long term, though, uh, it struggles to really gain traction at a political level. We'll take another short break and when we come back we'll look at how the kind of next representative government, if you want to call it that, the Cortes, also had a relationship with uh, the local. Okay, so in this third section, we're going to look at the Cortes. What happened is that the Junta Central eventually had to flee Sevilla and move to the port city of Cadiz, we've mentioned before, where it dissolved in favor of a regency council, which in turn convened the Cortes, which is the body that promulgated Spain's first constitution in 1812. So regarding that constitution, I'm wondering what it had to say about local government and the relationship between the, the state and the local. Yeah, so the Constitution of 1812 uh, actually has a lot to say on the subject, not only of the municipalities, but really for the first time also provincial level government. Um, the, the way in which deputies are elected to to participate in the Cortes uh, at the most local of level begins in the parish and so the, the role of the church is, is kind of important here so to elect a deputy essentially members of a parish would go to their local parish church they would vote uh, they would name electors those electors would then go uh, to the level of the partido, which is a sort of uh, judicial level arrangement, and, and then they would elect more electors then who would go uh, to a provincial assembly, wherein essentially from the ranks of those electors from the various partidos, they would elect someone to be a deputy for, for the province. Uh, and so we, we see that very local dimension uh, of de decision making, although not direct, right? This is yeah. a, a system of very uh, limited representative democracy. The, the partido level is somewhat interesting, but also the, the provincial level. This is really on some level the first time we're seeing those registers of government and that sort of mid-level uh, system of, of rule emerge in Spanish history. So uh, between the crown and the municipalities, there, there, there was this almost direct channel through the medieval period and early modern period. Uh, and certainly you have regional uh, councils and assemblies, but into the constitution, there's a lot of power conferred uh, to these provinces really for the first time, and they become an important force in their own right. 
So in 1812, the, the Cortes uh, is established uh, essentially because there is a long-standing precedent for its existence. Unlike the juntas, which really didn't have significant legal standing within the long history uh, of, of Spain, uh, the Cortes, by comparison, went all the way back to the medieval period. It was typically brought into being whenever there was a new king, so uh, part of the, the ceremony associated with a, a coronation involved the calling of a Cortes, uh, the members of the peerage uh, would attend, and so this is an opportunity for uh, certainly reminders uh, that loyalty are owed to a monarch, but also an opportunity for the monarch to essentially start passing uh, legislation. So. The Cortes having standing in the legal framework of Spain uh, provided a much stronger footing for the resistance to the French uh, to sort of structure themselves around. And so the, the Cortes promulgates, and I, I use promulgate, not ratifies, right? It, it basically just literally walks out to a balcony in Cadiz uh, where it's meeting and, and reads the constitution out and the, the, there's no process for uh, actually giving uh, the people or any of their institutions a say in this. Um, but the Cortes, because of its, of its authority, has the ability to do this. It immediately, because it writes into the constitution these roles for municipalities and provincial governments, starts using them as agents of the state. And it starts calling upon municipal fish officials and provincial officials to do things in fulfillment of uh, essentially keeping the country going and continuing uh, the war against the French. It seems like a little bit of a parallel with what happened in France because when Napoleon creates the departments, sort of like the provinces, but also in 1789 when they call the states general and that starts the, the French Revolution. But here, the Cortes convenes, but the king isn't even there to say, to say oh, you should or shouldn't do this. So it seems like, again, they're almost challenging the, the king's authority, right, in this way. Yeah, there's a lot of parallels between the Estates General in France and the Cortes. Um, and I think that is an important idea to keep in mind because certainly there was that precedent of the French Revolution. And so for many Spaniards, the idea of doing anything like the French Revolution was horrifying because of the potential that it held to unravel the state of political affairs. And also very importantly, the French Revolution was seen as anti-Catholic, right? And so by doing anything that smacked of uh, Jacobin-like behavior, uh, run the risk of making it seem as though this was something more than a response to a crisis, but uh, something more dangerous in, in terms of what might happen to the country. Um, in that regard, I, I think it, it's worth noting, and, and certainly the persons calling the Cortes, the members of the Regency, uh, importantly, uh, Gaspar Metro de Jovellanos, uh, a prominent figure associated with the, with this period and, and the efforts to bring the Cortes into being, they're, they're very concerned by the prospect for what this might mean beyond just responding to the French crisis, but in the sort of uh, political structure of the country where this thing might go. If we, if we return to this question of the relationship between the Constitution and these local governments. How did the local governments react to this new structure that the Constitution created? Did they follow that framework in terms of their interactions with the national government? Yeah, I guess it's really on some level a sort of mixed bag. You have some towns that are somewhat dismissive of the Cortes and its role. 
sort of imagining that eventually someday the king will return and the king will restore things back to the way they always were. And so no need to listen in this short term to what's going on out of Cadiz. For other towns, it is, I would argue, somewhat of an opportunistic uh, response. And so some of the grievances that you see existing in, in small communities, doesn't matter where or when, but in this particular situation, you know, small little grievances between people who uh, maybe had disagreements over ownership of land or uh, other forms of property uh, play out uh, against this landscape, right? So y you have persons who were forced out of power uh, with the arrival uh, of one government find an opportunity here now to say, oh, there's there's a new government in sway, and so uh, we're gonna tear down the old government, and and because this new constitutional government is calling for a, a new system of rule, we now sort sort of hold the upper hand in this system because your your past with, and your association with the old regime uh, delegitimizes you from being able to fully participate. So uh, again, I would label that sort of uh, opportunistic response. And then you also have some towns and some communities that I would argue sincerely respond to this moment uh, with a fair degree of zeal for the idea that the era of constitutional rule was finally here. And I say finally here because there was an awareness among some, not certainly all of the population, but among some uh, of events that had happened uh, in, in uh, France with their constitutional system, which granted larger stakes uh, of participation to a, a greater cross-section uh, of French society. And so not necessarily seeing the opportunity here as a one to completely remake the Spanish political system, but to see the constitution as a new horizon for political participation that had not been the case fully up until this point in time. And so, uh, again, that sort of third category of zealous adherence, uh, we see making petitions to the Cortes to fulfill long-standing grievances that either uh, the monarchy previously just did not want to hear uh, or perhaps were, were stymied by uh, the interests of various other stakeholders within the regime, so the church, powerful uh, members of the aristocracy. And so we, we, we see them petitioning the Cortes to do things, uh, imagining it now has power uh, unlike uh, some of its predecessors in the older system. So kind of a cross-section here, I would say that I'm most fascinated by or most interested in, uh, in terms of my writing on that last category, those who are really, I think, creatively uh, trying to use the Constitution in a manner to make claims that are modern. Uh, in many ways, and I, we can certainly talk about how yeah. problematic a, a term that is, but trying to make the Constitution something more than a moment, but into something that is going to be, in, in their mind, truly transformative. Do, do you have an example that you could give us of one of these towns making a claim to the, the constitutional body that kind of captures that relationship? Yeah, I would say the one that has been sort of with me for a very long time now, it's one of the first documents that I ever read, uh, was this petition from some local elites in the town of Esija, somewhat within the orbit of Seville. But the, the members of, uh, well, they're not all members of the town council, but we'll just call them sort of local elites. Uh, they basically petition the Cortes to reestablish uh, a bishopric centered at Esija. 
And this is somewhat interesting because there's on some level really kind of no precedent for there really being a full-fledged bishopric here. Um, but they see it, and they see it, and, and this is interesting, right? They're, they're asking for the Cortes to intervene on what is essentially the ecclesiastical structure, the, the sort of governing uh, church hierarchy within Spain. Typically, that's something you you ask the primate to, to meddle with, right? You go to the Archbishop of Toledo and you say, hey, can you give us a bishop? But instead, they're going to the Cortes, which is has a completely different different function here. But these petitioners essentially make their case on grounds of, you know, this would be in the best long-term interest of Ecija um, because we have a certain population size and our, our region has seen a lot of decline in population. So if we want to, and this is to sort of use uh, more modern terminology, if we want to promote economic development, we, we, we need an archbishop here in Ecija to, to further through the, the bishopical court, you know, the sort of bureaucracy and infrastructure that would, you know, encourage jobs and encourage growth. Um, so on the one hand, we have this very old focus on the church being the center of economic stability, and then also this very interesting modern, I would argue, approach to petitioning the constitutional government, not someone whose rights are determined because of divinity, essentially, but instead uh, the constitution in which they have given, from the bottom up, authority to have control over, over their livelihood uh, to institute this, this change, which in their, their mind is going to better their lot. Yeah, it's interesting how you have this group of elites trying to create a system that in some ways is going to preserve the old order, but then you get all these new relationships forming that they weren't there before, you know, the, the whole system is changing. Yeah, and, and so I, I wouldn't necessarily say that these elites are always fully conscious that what they're doing has the potential to radically change things. Uh, but nonetheless, they're doing it. And in many cases, they're doing it for self-serving reasons, not because, you know, they're trying to make waves. But in doing acts like that, I think they are leaving open the possibility for this moment being uh, really one of far-sweeping change. Yeah, so that kind of gets me to the last piece that I wanted to talk about, because of course when the king, Fernando VII, finally did return to Spain in 1814, he dissolved the Cortes throughout the Constitution, so it seems like this all kind of came crashing down, but do you see any longer-term effects uh, in terms of this relationship that the Constitution was establishing with these local governments? It's fascinating when Fernando VII does return, uh, he essentially issues a manifesto, the so-called Manifesto of the Persians, uh, that calls for a return to absolutism. And the phrase is, is often quoted, but it's as though things had never happened, right? So, you know, let's just pretend like that intervening episode where we had the juntas and we had the constitution and I wasn't the all-powerful force in, in the universe. It just, it never happened, right? Uh, and obviously you can't just sweep all of that underneath the rug. People remember the experiences that they had. Uh, and in some cases, if they were good ones, which for many people they were, they want to have the opportunity to continue uh, 
exercising some of the, the new rights and privileges that they enjoyed between 1808 and, and about 1813 when things start to kind of begin to unravel. And so if you look at the years and the decades after 1814, uh, what we see in 1820, of course, is the Riego Revolt in which the Constitution of 1812 is restored. Of course, there's an invasion from France again uh, in the 1820s that leads to uh, that constitution being pushed out again. And you could really argue that, you know, the oscillations we see between conservatives and progressives in Spain throughout the 19th century are a back and forth replaying of essentially the dynamics that exist in this uh, era of the Guerra de la Independencia. And so, I, I would argue certainly at that sort of high level, uh, the political conflicts that emerged during the war uh, with France continue to replicate themselves. With regards to what we see at the municipal level, I, I would also argue that the new position in the sort of political cosmos uh, of Spain that the, that the municipalities enjoy during the war with France resurfaces again and again, right? So in terms of thinking how Spain is modern or not, right, this is one of these large historiographical questions. Many scholars would argue, you know, to be fully modern, you need to subordinate the local in preference of uh, the central, right? Mm -hmm. Often associated with the national. In a sense, the municipalities don't go away. And the ascent of centralized rule, centralized decision making doesn't really fully take shape in Spain's 19th century could owe to the degree of political independence that these municipalities enjoyed during the War of Independence, and they are really loath to give it up. And so we continue to see, uh, certainly during the liberal triennium of 1820 to 1823, uh, extensive political participation by municipalities. If you look at a lot of the events over the course of the 19th century, you see, again, uh, municipalities kind of at the fore of participation. Right, So mm -hmm. you can think even of the, the disturbances that followed the departure of uh, Isabel II from the throne. There was this sort of crisis in the, in the First Republic uh, in which municipalities kind of started doing their own thing again. You could even argue in the 20th century, right? Uh, during the period of the 1930s, there's a lot of regional and even sort of local revolts. There's histories uh, of uh, small communities in Andalusia, especially uh, linked to anarchism, trying to sort of reject uh, the will of the central governments and do their own thing. And so there's, there's always this struggle between the center and the local in, in Spanish history. And on some level, that's not unique to Spain, but it is a certain sort of extreme in Spain, I, I think you could argue, that makes makes Spain look very different, right? Know there's another common trope here, España es diferente. But I, I think that's important in considering how Spain's journey into the modern look different from some other European states. Mm -hmm. Just to kind of conclude here, if we keep going along that track, one of the arguments that has been made for kind of a backward Spain, if we're going to go with another big theme in, in Spanish history, is that the power of the local did continue into the modern period, whereas, say, in France, the central government managed to consolidate its control more. Based on your work, would you agree with that, that having that local power necessarily says that Spain wasn't modern or was behind other places? No, I, I think actually more interestingly, it suggests that 
at the core of Spanish political culture is gr a greater degree of participation by local communities uh, as part of the decision-making process. And so, uh, you know, of, of course, Spain's journey towards modernity looks different. But in this regard, in some ways, you could even say it's, it's better than, than some of these other paths where there is certainly a... And I think you could even argue to the present, there is a greater commitment to uh, local decision making and in a respect and maybe even an appreciation for uh, the role of uh, local governments that, that's quite important. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming on the program, Nick. I think this has been a fascinating discussion that has really allowed us to see this chaotic period around the War of Independence in a whole new light. Thanks, Foster. It's always fun to talk Spanish history. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias, the Spanish history podcast. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to follow us on Facebook so that you can be notified of new episodes. Mm -hmm.